Hello, and welcome to Christianity and Classical Culture, Episode Zero for the Fleming Foundation. I'm Stephen Heiner, and my guest today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, it's so great to be with you today. It's a pleasure to join you, Stephen. Uh, as with all Zero episodes, we will try to explain the reason for this particular program and what we hope to cover in future episodes. And I'm going to jump right into it with Dr. Fleming and ask him the burning question, which has been with us for a couple thousand years now. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, Dr. Fleming? Yes, well, that is the question asked famously by uh, Tertullian, although I think it's been uh, very much misinterpreted and uh, overinterpreted. The, the fact is that uh, our Lord was born into three civilizations, the age at which three civilizations intersected, the Greek, the Roman, and the Jewish. And each one of these traditions contributed enormously to, uh, to the formation of the Christian Church, and they're all more or less indispensable to the history of Christianity. Now, we know I mean, the, the, the Jewish or Hebraic foundation, of, with its uh, belief in one God and the, the, and the expectation of a Messiah and with a moral law, this is, this is, of course, we understand that. But what's not so much understood is uh, the indispensable part that Greek philosophy played in clarifying Christian theology and defending it from error. Because when, when, the, when the great disputes about the nature of Christ or the nature of Trinity began, they, it, 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 it could have just been a sort of exchange of insults, but instead it had turned increasingly on, on the kinds of arguments and weapons developed by uh, Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. But at the same time, the development of the Church was enabled by the, the forms of Roman law and Roman imperial administration. It's no accident that the structure of the Christian Church, East and West, is the structure of the Roman Empire. And so, you know, really, just on this very simple and crude level, uh, the biggest mistake I think Christians have been making, and especially in recent centuries, is to think that the that they can somehow resurrect a primitive Judaic religion of the apostles and some and kick out all of the Greek and Roman culture uh, and that they're going to have a pure Christianity. Such a Christianity never existed. I mean, our Lord spoke Greek, we know, and uh, and the Gospels are written in Greek. The uh, St. Paul appeals explicitly to philosophical arguments and makes allusions to Greek poetry. I mean, so from the very beginning, from the first day of the Church, we are dealing with this kind of intersection of culture. And over the centuries, of course, the, 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 the development of a Christian literature, of a Christian philosophy, of a Christian view of history, all of these things, of course, took for granted the classical tradition which had led up to it. St. Augustine, who is often very critical of the Romans and of, the, and of some Greek philosophers, he sometimes writes he, as if, he says, Plato and Plotinus were surely sent by the Holy Spirit to guide us. 
because their their work is too sublime and too necessary for our thought to ignore. So I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding uh, by uh, certain kinds of Christians who want to be primitive, a lot of misunderstanding of, about the value of the classical tradition. And of course, whether you like it or not, the, the classical tradition formed the medieval mind, formed the mind of the Renaissance, and fo- formed the church, both the Orthodox and Catholic branches of the church. And, and if we want to talk about the Reformers, the English church was almost as rooted in the classics as, as the Catholic church. And, and uh, Luther and Calvin were both superbly well-educated classicists. So there's, there's really no escaping this reality. It's like, it's like imagine a 50-year-old person who said, I want to go back and play with blocks again. I want to be a child again. Well, that's infantile. We, and it's wrong for Christians who belong to a very rich and developed cultural tradition to try to be infantile. Well, uh, Dr. Fleming, some might say, well, Dr. Fleming's a classics major. You've done a show on Latin and how we need to learn that. And he's talking about philosophy. You know, I'm not, I, I, I do, I'm not really engaged in the, the, the languages and philosophy part of it. What else do the Romans and the Greeks have to give us that we need to go back and study them better in order to become um, more engaged Christians, which I, I think is what you're proposing? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, one thing is they give us context. You know, the New Testament gives us a lot of uh, a lot of precepts, a lot of and a lot of admonitions, a lot of warning, telling us how to live and how not to live. And if you take these out of out of a cultural and historical context, they can it can be they can sound like it's a revolution to destroy the family and to destroy society. But of course, if you take other passages from the New Testament. He tells, he tells Pilate, for example, he wouldn't have any authority if the authority of the Roman Empire did not come from God himself. And St. Paul says exactly the same thing in the famous 13th chapter of his epistle to the Romans. So really, uh, this, this, these traditions, not only are they valuable in themselves, not only did they create this splendid and beautiful culture, of, of the of ancient of ancient Christianity and medieval Christianity, but also they they give us uh, a a a a background and a, a cultural context in which we could help to interpret uh, uh, passages in the uh, in the New Testament. They also give us a parallel to the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament is a fine and rich book, but it's one small collection of books. And it's mirrored and echoed and paralleled point after point, as is the New Testament, by the by uh, classical writings. So, at the very least, you could say the classical tradition uh, a lot, uh, prevents us from being seriously misled by statements taken out of context. And of course, this this method, which is sometimes called proof texting, you know, you take one sentence and you try to explain the whole creation with that one sentence. Uh, this, this is what uneducated people do. One of the values of a serious education is it keeps you balanced. You, it, it allows you, as they say, to mentally to walk and chew gum at the same time. 
Well, as you as you said initially, Dr. Fleming, our Lord was born into three civilizations, the, the Judaic, the Hellenic, and, and the Roman. Now, I, I've heard you say in the past that there are, there are pros and cons or benefits and dangers to, to examining each of these uh, civilizations. Can you speak briefly on these? Yeah. This is, uh, this is uh, one of my hobby horses, uh, but... You know, each each of these traditions, the Roman, the Hellenic, and the Hebraic, have unique things to contribute to Christianity, but if taken only by themselves, uh, they can lead to uh, distortions. Uh, for, for example, uh, the Roman tradition is one of legalism and of, uh, and of order and obedience. And when Christianity uh, intermingles with the Roman attitude, of course, it's, it allows the church to create a, a, a broad and comprehensive ecclesiastical institution. And this is a very good thing. On the other hand, if carried too far, you, and, and you find this not just in the Catholic Church, but among Calvinists and among various other religious groups, you find this idea of identifying society with the law, with the political order, and you find an attempt to use the ecclesiastical organization combined with whatever it is, the monarchy, the empire, the democracy, and before long, they're, they're trying to enforce theology as they did in Calvin's Geneva, and there have been times in the history of the Roman Church when this has also uh, been a problem. And, and that, therefore, you know, the Roman, we might call it the, the, the Roman element or the Roman temptation, has to be balanced by the uh, Judaic and, and Greek traditions. As for the Greeks, what they gave us was, of course, brilliant speculative philosophy, a relentless pursuit of truth, even when it seemed that the truth seems to be impossible. The, the beginning of Greek uh, philosophy, I think, really can be found in one person, namely Parmenides. And Parmenides is famous for a sentence which says, uh, that which is, is, that which is not, is not, and cannot be. Now, in other words, he, de he denied the existence of nothing. And as a result, he concluded, uh, a little bit improbably, that, uh, that the universe was an unmoving, unchanging sphere. Now, obviously, uh, you know, he had sort of painted himself into a corner, but, you know, later on, this very theory gave rise to two notions. One notion was the idea of the atom in the atomic theory, and the other idea was the, de was the beginning to understand the definition of God who cannot suffer change beca or because he is immortal. So the, the point is that the, the Greek tradition gives us this, this brilliance and this, this philosophy to counter the, the Roman tendency toward rigid order. At the same time, though, it also gives us a temptation to enter into speculative heresies which, uh, which have to be put down by the Roman side of the church. That is, you have, at some point, the, dis the, the discussion has to stop, and there has to be an authority that says, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Arius, but you're wrong. As logical as your, as your argument about the, the nature of Christ is, and the Trinity is, it's wrong. 
Similarly, uh, the, the the Jewish tradition is one of uh, of uh, it's it's one of great piety, especially in external forms. And so, when Jesus came along, you know, he picked grain on the Sabbath, and he was condemned, and he he had to tell them that the the Sabbath was made for man and not the Sabbath. So, counterbalancing the great value of Jewish piety. And and the and the enormous reverence which they paid toward the creator of the universe, there was a tendency toward Phariseeism, toward saying the rules are the rules and they're more important than the human lives involved. And and again, both both the Roman and the Greek traditions helped to counter the somewhat superstitious tendencies that you get if if you fall too far into the Hebraic tradition. So none of these traditions. But taken by itself, I think is sufficient. And this is one of many reasons why it's so important for Christians, especially those who belong to more traditional branches of the Christian faith, the Catholic, the Orthodox, the Anglican, the Lutheran, uh, any even serious Calvinists. It's very important for them to, uh, to, to study all three of these traditions. And of course, uh, again, this is in addition to the fact that this is where our civilization comes from, whether we like it or not. Trying to uproot ourselves from the classical tradition, which we tried in the 20th century, has led to a, a nightmare of ignorance and barbarism and stupidity in the people who have done this. Well, Dr. Lamy, let's say we accept your argument that we, we see all the reasons why it's important to tap into these different civilizations and the values that they uh, put forth. What do you propose to do in this program? Clearly, we're not a current events program if we're talking about the no. classics. What would, you, what would you like us to explore in future episodes? What I think is going to be very interesting are areas, problems... In, that are contemporary, things that come up every day, arguments, for example, about the death penalty, arguments about immigration, arguments about marriage, arguments about uh, sexual morality. These are arguments which, uh, which many Christians try to answer, and they can be answered by, uh, by strictly appealing to Scripture, but there are, uh, there are a couple of problems with this method. In the first place, no, no non-Christian is going to listen to you, and most sort of liberal or misguided, uh, misguided liberal Christians, they're not going to listen either. And it also tends to give off the feeling that, in other words, we're just following a book which may or may not be true or may or may not have relevance to our own circumstances. When you can put some of these arguments in context, whether, whether it's, does, do, do, do countries have a right to defend themselves? Do we have a right to punish criminals? Uh, what, what is the nature of marriage? The Christian tradition of these is very, is, 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 was enriched, but also often comes from the classical tradition. And so as a result, we can correct all sorts of uh, tendencies in, in, in sort of in what you might call liberal or radical Christianity, tendencies to, to, 
to overthrow the normal social, political, and moral order. I've met a lot of uh, lifetime people who were brought up in, in, in Christian traditions, especially Catholics, who finally said, well, when I read so, all these ridiculous things about why we couldn't, uh, we couldn't control our border, why we should uh, not punish criminals, or why uh, two men can marry, uh, which you get in some uh, very liberal denominations, when, I read, when they read these things, they get demoralized. And so I think by, by looking at it through these problems, and the, from both from the perspective of Christianity and the classical tradition, we can come up with a sense of what, what human reality is really like. And that is it, it turns out that the Christian tradition is, is not uh, a revolution against human nature and human history and human institutions as it has been so often represented. Christ said he came to fulfill the law, not to overturn it. And, and the law is, as we know, as, uh, as Christians we know, the law is not just the law of the, uh, of the Torah. It is the, it is the law uh, that implanted in nature and it resides in human hearts. And so those, so these three great traditions which culminate in the formation of the Christian church, this is the way of getting the fullness of the divine law and a fullness of understanding. I suppose in a way, Dr. Fleming, we're looking at these questions to see that we're not alone. Well, exactly. Exactly. We, 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 you know, the, uh, the old expression was, uh, you know, you're trying to reinvent the wheel. And as I, I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago in a private conversation, too many people who reinvent the wheel end up with an octagon. And it, it doesn't work, you know. And uh, so one of the things we're going to do, I think, is to find out that uh, people who hold traditional Christian views are not freaks. They're, these views were held by the most civilized people in the history of our cultural tradition. The Greeks and the Romans uh, agreed with enormously uh, with with uh, everything we're uh, we're going to be talking with everything the Christians have believed, and uh, obviously they did not have the the gift of revelation, and they and they made uh, mistakes. But through natural reason, they came uh, their their wisest people came very close, and that is and that's why uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas, for example, always hardly ever mentions the name Aristotle. He simply calls him the philosopher because he is the philosopher who helps to, uh, is most useful in discovering Christian truth. But it's not just the philosophers that we can look at. It's the history, ancient historians, ancient poets, uh, ancient statesmen. They all have something to contribute. And, and by the way, always have contributed to uh, the Christian tradition. In the Middle Ages, the writers who were constantly read by students that is, people especially studying for the priesthood. Cicero, Virgil, Aristotle in translation, Boethius, these were, these were, the, uh, these were, these were the textbook writers for them. And they've, they've never, we've never been divorced from this, from this Christianized classical tradition. And the attempt to, to divorce us, which has been happening, say, in the past hundred years, 
I think has been disastrous, not just for our culture and our morality, but it's been disastrous for the church. Well, it's uh, our hope to look at those disasters with uh, better lenses and better sources. That will be our endeavor in future episodes. Thanks so much for taking the time to tell us what it's all about to get us started, Dr. Fleming. We look forward to seeing you next episode, and we'll find out what our topic will be then. Great.